0: Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Matthew, the seventh chapter, the final sermon, and the Sermon on the Mount. And as we conclude this morning, we see that Jesus wraps it all up by giving us the key to the Christian life. The message is building on the rock. To love Jesus is to obey Him. Again, verses 21 through 29. So he wraps it all up by giving us the key to the Christian life. And we can sum up this key with one word. And I bet you know the word. What is it? Obedience. That's right. Obedience rooted in a life yielded, submitted, surrendered to Jesus Christ. A distinct obedience that reveals many things. But perhaps first and foremost, it reveals who you are. And whose you are. We see from the scripture before us this morning that Jesus is describing for us two groups, two types of people, and through them, he's going to teach us this plain truth that apart from obedience to the Father, everything else is worthless. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Jesus says, And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were astonished. crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Fathers, we close out this wonderful, powerful, poignant and passage that's been so tough on us in our walk and called us to such a high standard. I pray that you'd move today in these last verses. Help us to understand what it means to be your true disciple and to follow you and to do your will what it means to have our house built on the rock. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So, what marks, what are the characteristics of a true disciple? And we're focusing on verses 21 through 23 here. And we see here the foundational importance of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He tells us in these three verses what faithful following is all about by distinguishing between true discipleship and pseudo-discipleship or false discipleship. Beloved, the time is coming, the day is coming, when we will all stand before the great King above all kings, the majestic glory. We'll all stand before the judge over all the earth. God tells us, in His Word of that day, that wonderful day, when all of His plans for this world will have been consummated. The day when multitudes will gather around His throne, a great and awesome day, a day of incomparable joy for some and horrific consequence for others. A day filled with glory and majesty, which our mere mortal minds cannot conceive, nor can the most intelligent theologians, the most learned philosophers, the most gifted of orators among us muster sufficient terms to describe the magnitude, the finality, the significance of this glorious and momentous day. Just stop for a minute and and just consider for a moment what you're going to say to your Father on that splendorous day. What amazing thoughts might be racing through your mind. What magnificent and spectacular sights you might behold. What, what breathtaking emotions will be racing through your heart and mind. We can't know. The Word tells us we can't know. But one thing is for sure on that day, whatever we'll be seeing or thinking or saying, we will be held accountable for our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's clear from our text that Jesus is called for some sort of response. Jesus indicates that when He says, Many will say to Him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name, and in Your name cast out demons, and in Your name perform many, many miracles? Jesus is saying that folks, a lot of them on that day, are going to be making claims to have performed some mighty, some very significant deeds in His name. And part of me, and I'm sure some of you are asking this question too, how could anyone who's prophesied in the name of Jesus, who's cast out demons in the name of Jesus, who's performed miracles, many miracles in the name of Jesus, not be valued as worthy and important when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ? But could this text be saying to us that a lot of folks do things Purportedly in his name, which are not in line with his will, which he has not authorized him to do, which do not bring him glory because they're not rooted in a relationship with him. Could it be, could it be, in fact, that many people claiming to work for God do not know God? One thing Jesus is saying to us is that. Mere works for the Father are not what it takes to be a child of the King. He's saying that works in and of themselves are not necessarily evidence that one is a child of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. One thing that clearly means is that it takes more than lip service to be a child of God. Jesus tells us that it takes obedience to the will of God. A lot of folks believe that any work for God means they're doing the will of God. That's not necessarily the case because what many are doing is what what merely makes them happy, what brings them gratification, what they think needs to be accomplished, but which in fact is not in line with the will of God at all. You see, one of the proofs, a key one that we're obedient to His will is that our life is a reflection of His life. That is, when people look at us, they see something of Him. A basic tenet of biblically-based obedience is that it is never subjective. It's never random. It's never arbitrary. It's never haphazard. There's nothing haphazard about obedience to God. Obedience is fundamentally about forfeiting any right we think we have to call the shots and instead allowing Him to rule our lives. Obedience is surrender to him. Obedience is a life of Christ being lived through us. Obedience flows from a living relationship with God. Obedience comes from knowing Christ intimately. If we look at the strong and staggering, really response of our Lord in verse 23, we see, if we dig just a little, the root of obedience. It's here that Jesus utters some of the most, I would suggest to you, heartbreaking words in all of Scripture. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And what I want us to focus on in this difficult and distressing verse is one little four-letter word, a word that has more weight than we might imagine with just a cursory reading, a word that unveils one of the most important concepts in all of Scripture, and that is, what Jesus really means when He uses the phrase, I never knew you. This is an extremely important concept for us to grasp, one that I believe we need to visit and revisit often. What does it mean for God to know someone and not to know someone else? Now, now we know He doesn't... He can't mean that he's not aware of the existence of a person, right? He's not being literal when he says, I don't know who you are. It's not that, because we know that he knows who everybody is. He's got the hair on every person's head numbered. He knows us from our mother's womb. He knows everything and everyone there is to know because he is the omniscient creator. So, so what is he saying when he says, I never knew you? We're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. I want to show you something about this question from God's Word. There Paul writes, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are His. Would you read that part aloud with me? The Lord knows those... Who are his. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying to us in 2 Timothy? And how does it connect with the words of Jesus in our text? And the first thing we need to see is that the word know in Scripture often implies a unique love relationship. In Amos 3 2, God says, Israel only have I known. Your text may say chosen. Now, now is Israel the only nation that God knew about? Well, clearly not. So what was he saying? He was saying, Israel and I have this special, intimate relationship. In the Old Testament, the concept of a man and woman coming together in a marital relationship is spoken of as a man knowing his wife. For example, in Genesis 4.17, the Bible says Cain knew his wife. So we're not to assume, of course, that he knew his wife in in the basic sense of knowing her as a person. There's more to it than that. The Bible tells us that Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. In other words, to know in this sense speaks to the unique intimacy of a love relationship between a husband and a wife. You remember that the Bible says that Joseph had not known Mary She was pregnant. He knew he was not the father. He wanted to set her aside until the angel of the Lord came in the night and convinced him otherwise. But by law, he could have had her stoned. So in human relationships, the word no used in this sense implies a unique relationship between two people. And in terms of God's relationship with us, it's the same thing. Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 9, believers are known of God. Don't you think about that, child of God? This is such a precious and a wonderful concept. And isn't that not what Scripture teaches? Does not God say that Israel was his wife? And is the church not the bride and Christ the bridegroom? Beloved, you and I have an intimate love relationship with God, and it's an awesome thing. In John 10, we can find a beautiful illustration of this for us. John points out the incredible truth regarding this relationship by recording the words of Jesus. Let's look at them. In, in verse 14 of chapter 10 in John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I, what was he say? Know my sheep. Know my sheep. Do you understand how, how amazing that is, how awesome that is? I want you to read along with me and I want you to, if you can, in your mind, substitute the word love every time the word no comes up. I'm going to read it that way. I'm going to show it to you that way. I am the good shepherd. I love my own and my own love me. Just as the Father loves me and I love the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now look down at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I love them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is, a, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I love that verse. I and the Father are one. Beloved, are you able to grasp the wonder and the beauty and the depth of the love relationship that we have with Jesus Christ? Can you, can you grasp that? Somebody ought to say hallelujah. Understanding this truth regarding the the level of intimacy we have with God our Father ought to bless you. It ought to encourage you this morning. When God says, I know my sheep, when Christ says, I know who you are, that means you and He have an intimate love relationship. And I don't know about you, but that is incredibly comforting for me. But He says to those with whom he does not have this love relationship. I never knew you. And again, that results in some of the saddest, most tragic words in in all of Scripture. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Soul-crushing words, heartbreaking words. We see them repeated in Matthew 25, verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil... And his angels. And this is beyond sad. It's the picture of ultimate judgment. A tragedy beyond our comprehension as those who have never given their heart to Christ are brought before God and not being covered by the blood of Christ, are destined for an eternity in hell. Jesus restates the condition for the kingdom to do the will of God, and then they cry out, but, but Jesus, we did all that. And the judge speaks with irrevocable finality and says, you're condemned because we never had that love relationship. See, Christianity is not about ritual or tradition or ancestry, and you've heard this many times before, it's not about religion. It's about a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have that love relationship this morning? Do you know Christ like that? Let me illustrate it like this. There was an actor at a dinner party who, for post-meal entertainment was often asked to recite a few lines from one of his recent roles and this was the case again and he stood up and he wanted to be gracious to the audience said of course i'll recite anything you'd like for me to recite and the crowd was a bit timid and so no one spoke up until finally an old preacher stood up and said i'd like to hear you recite the 23rd psalm well the movie star was a little shocked and at that request but he put himself out there and felt like he had to do with the preacher asked and he happened to know the 23rd psalm so he said "All right, I'll do that so he repeated this great psalm with just masterful eloquence just the right emphasis on the right syllables the interpretation was perfect the diction was perfect and when he finished spontaneous applause erupted throughout the room the actor had an idea that he might just get back at the old preacher a little bit and he said now I'd like to hear you recite it the old preacher hadn't bargained for that but because he loved Christ and he loved his word, he knew Psalm 23. He stood up and he repeated it. His voice was cracked. It broke several times. The whole thing wasn't particularly beautiful. The interpretation was not particularly good. And when he finished, there were no applause. But there was not a dry eye in the room. And the famous actor, overcome by his own emotions, stood up and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I reached your eyes and ears, but he reached your heart. And then he said, the difference is this. I know the psalm. He knows the shepherd. So what Jesus is saying in our text is that Our obedience to the will of the Father exposes the genuineness of our relationship with Him as God the Son. It doesn't matter how many good works we might have done, even though we felt they were done in His name, as did these who preached and cast out demons and even performed many miracles. Jesus says, if you're not obedient to the Father's will, we will hear Him say, I never knew you. Our acceptance is based solely on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the genuineness, the authenticity, the proof of that relationship is measured by our obedience. Works apart from relationship are works that while they may accomplish something good, they're not what He's looking for. They do not impress Him. What we need to grasp is that from this teaching we can learn that the absolute necessity is we not confuse obedience with doing things. Because Christianity is about relationship with the living Lord Jesus. We've died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. We no longer live, but Christ lives through us. We belong to Christ and we have crucified our sinful nation nature with its passions and desires. Authentic Christianity is about obeying God, living by the power that He gives us, obedience to God's will for our lives. Authentic disciples of Christ... Do not just call out to him, Lord, Lord, they actually do the will of God. This next set of folks that Jesus tells us about demonstrates demonstrate what it takes to allow us to withstand and to fail to stand as the case were the storms that we will inevitably face. And the final storm, which is the final judgment, of which Jesus has just spoken and Not surprisingly, we discover again that the key is obedience. In verse 24 through 27, Jesus contrasts the wise with the foolish builder. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So Jesus tells us about two men in this illustration who each built a house. The houses are basically indistinguishable, probably built close together for the services of this illustration here, certainly close enough to undergo undergo the same intensity of weather, rain and winds and floods. In fact, there appears to be only a single distinction between these houses. One was built on sand and one was built upon rock. In other words, the, the builder of one house had taken the time to excavate down past the sandy topsoil to the bedrock below. It was there that he laid his foundation for his house. The other builder, for whatever reason, decided not to do that. He just built his house on the top of the ground without going to the trouble of excavating to the rock underneath. And, And the problem with the house built on the sand was that when the storms rolled in and the the floods rose, it collapsed like a house of cards. But, But the other house did not fall under the same amount of duress. It held up because it had its foundation on the rock rather than on shifting sand. Now it's clear that one of these builders was wise and the other, or to use Jesus' own words, was a morass builder. Moros is the Greek word we get the word moron from, a word that we are, are admittedly uncomfortable using. What was the difference between them? Jesus makes it clear that the wise builder is the one who listens to my teachings and follows those teachings, obeys what he's been taught, does something positive with what he hears. The foolish builder, on the other hand, is one who hears but does not obey the teachings that could make his life better, that could give him wisdom and joy and peace and strength, the teaching that could literally save him when everything else around him was literally falling apart, that teaching went in one ear and out the other. Beloved, the key to our relationship with Christ and to standing in the storms of life and to standing before God is our obedience to the will and the Word of God despite the storms. Which, by the way, in this illustration came to both builders. So so in these two illustrations, Jesus has made it abundantly clear that it is not what we merely hear that matters. It's what we do with what we hear. As James says, right? Do not merely listen to the Word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Our response, our level of obedience to the Lord reveals two huge facts about us and about our faith. Number one, where we stand with God. And secondly, how well we're going to stand up under the storms of life. The people around our Lord were astonished at His teaching. He, 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 he was, they thought, an uneducated carpenter from a little bitty town called Nazareth. And here He was teaching as one who had genuine authority, not as their scribes. And the pseudo-authority that they manifested What they could not have known at this time was that Jesus taught with an unfamiliar authority because He had the ultimate authority, the authority of the Lord God Almighty, the ruler of heaven and earth. Church family, Jesus is the authority. The question is, how are we going to respond to Him? And we have some choices along these lines. We can decide that, you know, I've got this figured out. Or if I don't right now, I'll figure it out as I go along. Either way, I don't need God telling me how to live my life. And if we make that choice, I would suggest we could even have what would be called religion, but we would never know the passion and the depth and the joy of a life surrendered to Christ, a life driven by the pursuit of an intimate relationship with Him. The idea that too many who call themselves Christians have is that if, if they just let go of a few things that they've figured out that are displeasing to God, displeasing to others, and make them look bad in the eyes of others and, in, and perhaps in God's eyes, and then they can have this proper and, and profitable relationship with Christ. But what they and we have got to understand is that God is not calling on us to commit to do a few more good things for Him. He's calling us to surrender our lives to Him. He's calling us to give up trying to to do stuff for Him and to really live for Him. God's not interested in us giving Him a, a few of the spare hours we can squeeze out of an already overloaded calendar with all these demands on our precious time. What He wants is our whole life every aspect, every dimension, every thought, every attitude, every action. And, beloved, what He offers in exchange is His life. If we will, in effect, crucify our old life, if we'll strive with Paul... And listen, this battle, this, is, this, this, this life that I'm talking about here is a battle that, that in many ways only begins once we make a commitment to Christ. If we must really commit and recommit ourselves... Each day, and if we commit to say like Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that we live this life by faith, trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. If we'll make that choice, He has promised that He will live in us and through us and empower us to do more than just a few good works, but to do the greater works, to really live. The old hymn, might seem a bit worn, but it is altogether true. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows. Are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let me take you a little more deeply into the differences. What does it mean to really build your life on the things that Christ has said that are revealed in Scripture? To build your life biblically. You want to you do the will of God. You want to know the will of God. You've got to know the Word. Billy Graham said, He who is ignorant of the Word will always be ignorant of the will of God. They go together. One, in the one situation, you build the easy way, and the other, you build the hard way. It's really easy to build on sand. Again, you don't have to do anything. Just start building. You don't have to dig down in preparation. You don't set proper footings on stable ground. You don't build your building on a proper foundation. It's easy to to build on sand. You just start throwing your building up. And that speaks of something. It speaks of of the fool who's in a hurry, who's looking for the easy way out, the shortcut, the quick results. Fools are always in a hurry. Fools always want to get it done fast. And while I'm here, let me say this about that. In many ways, we in the church have assisted the foolish by trying to make everything quick and easy. Quick and easy evangelism. Quick and easy gospel presentation. Quick and easy church membership. No time for confronting sin and sinners. No time for building a deep sense of one's sinfulness. No time for the cultivation of the conviction of the Holy Spirit building regret over sin, no time for some deep soul-searching, no time for counting the cost. The fool's in a hurry. just wants to get it done quick and easy. And very often I fear that we have accommodated the fool by making these precious things quick and easy. On the one hand, the wise man, Luke 6, 47 and 48 says, the wise man dug deep. The wise man dug deep. He went down into the rock. Now what does that mean? means he wasn't in a hurry he wasn't looking for the inside track to heaven not looking for the easy conversion for the superficial confession arthur pink once said there are some who say they are saved before they ever have any sense they are lost beloved i would suggest to you we have to get a man lost before we can get him saved it's almost against the rules now to give someone an overwhelming sense that they're lost to help them See down deep into what is the ugliness of their heart, the wretchedness of their sin. But the wise are not in a hurry. They want to make sure that what they're doing is the real thing. There are many who would claim Christ as Lord who have no thought of what that really means, what that really entails. In fact, there are a great many people who confess Jesus as Lord and don't think that means that He's in charge. Many hurry into a profession of faith, and after a short while, they hurry out again. There are many denominations who are le- losing converts out the back door as quickly as they're getting them in the front door. And then secondly, unlike the foolish man, the wise man is not superficial in his house building. He gives maximum effort. He counts the cost. Right? Jesus said that, right? You don't go to war without counting the cost. You don't build a tower without counting the cost. We need to understand what it is the Lord's asking of us. He's asking for our life. He's asking for our whole life. He's asking for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. And, beloved, if following Him costs you your family, then it costs you your family. Your father, your mother, your wife, your husband, your children, your sister, your brother, your friends. If following Him means you are persecuted to death, even death on a cross, then so be it. Thankfully, He hasn't come to that in this country Yet. but deny yourself and all things and follow me. All that stuff was Jesus' words, not mine. The wise person wants to do it right, counts the cost, learns the right way, willingly submits. He's emptied of self-righteousness. He's emptied of self-sufficiency. He's willing to dig down deep. He knows he has nothing praiseworthy in and of his own self. He knows his own sinfulness. He makes the maximum effort. In the Lord's strength to let the Word of Christ dwell in him richly. He's interested in genuinely submitting to Christ and loving Christ. He longs to know the Word, that he might obey the Word, that he might know the will of God and obey the will of God. There's nothing superficial about the wise man. There are so many people in in Christianity today who want the quick, fast track like so many other things in our culture. They want the byproducts. I would suggest to you of a relationship with Christ without the sacrifice that goes into a true love relationship with Christ. They want the blessings of salvation without the difficulty that goes at times, and the pro- comes along at times in the process of sanctification. They want the results of repentance but are not willing to genuinely repent. They want forgiveness without understanding what forgiveness costs. They want the abundant life without submission and accountability. Too many folks are busy looking for signs. They're chasing after miracles. They'll they'll dabble in the Word unaware of its real power for their lives. They want a relationship with God, but on their terms, not on His. And so our Lord says... This is how people build. And the truth will not be revealed until the storm comes. What is the ultimate storm? Looking at the context of these verses, coming on the heels of what we discussed earlier, it's the day of judgment. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. The same thing is described exactly in verse 27. The first house again didn't fall because it was founded on the rock second house fell, and great was its fall. This is the divine judgment. This is the picture of the final judgment. The day of judgment when people will say, Lord, Lord, it's me. Remember all that stuff I did for you? To many, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Listen, beloved, you may be respectful of Christ. You may have orthodox views about Christ. You you may see yourself in your own mind's eye as fervent and zealous. You you may be active at some level in the church. You may have even made a profession of faith. But I urge you, beloved, beloved, go back. Check your foundation. Go back and check your foundation. How, How do you know if you don't have a foundation? A few things to think about. Marks of the many with only sand under their religious house. Do you find in your life a reluctance to submit fully to Christ? Are you constantly looking for ways around the clear commands of Scripture? Does your love for the Lord exceed your love for the myriad technological distractions at your fingertips? as measured by time and obedience. Does it bother you that following Christ means you can no longer follow the crowd? And lastly, do you find yourself making excuses for habitual sin, becoming less and less convicted by your sin in general, spending more energy justifying and rationalizing your sin than fighting for your personal holiness? Check your foundation. And then this... But we can be busy, even effective in religious activity, but lack the proper motivation. Let me ask you, why do you come to church? Young people, do you come to church because your parents expect you? Because your friends expect you to come? Do we come to church because we're afraid of what folks will say about us if we don't come to church? Are we unwittingly caught up in a works mentality trying to earn our way in? Check your motives. Check your motives often. Unless you do what you do for Christ's kingdom out of your love for Him, out of your consuming desire for His glory, you may need to work on your foundation. You and I must examine our heart, examine it often, and do it carefully. Let's wrap this up today. We've come to the end of this journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which we began back in January. Can you believe that? January 29th, I believe it was. It ends on the the same note of, of radical choice that we've seen throughout, right? It's been a tough journey. It's been hard for me to preach it to you, and trust me, I've, it works on me before it ever gets to you. But then I, I worry. I've said to Scott and others many times, you know, it feels like we're, I'm just beating folks up week in and week out, and they've all told me, "No, you're preaching the word, brother. It's the next verse." But it's tough. I get that. It's been a tough journey as we've been confronted over and over again with what is no string of easy ethical rules. But with principles and standards that call us to live a life completely different from that of the world. He calls us, Christ does, to turn away from the world and to live in a radical, wildly unpopular, countercultural lifestyle. Over and over again, as we've journeyed through these verses, we've heard him call us to be different people from everybody else out there in the world. The first time this became clear was in His command for us to be both the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But if you hadn't noticed, the world is rotting away. We are called to be the salt to arrest that decay. The world is a dark and dismal place. Men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. And we are called, beloved, as His followers, to bring light into the darkness into the gloom. Jesus continues then with a string of, You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, standards, calling us to exceed the law. Our righteousness is deeper because it reaches even to our hearts. Our love is is more inclusive because it includes even our enemies. In our spiritual disciplines, we are to avoid the pretense of hypocrites and, and prattling on like pagans. He commands that our giving and our praying and our fasting to be genuine with no compromise of our Christian integrity. We're to desire as treasure that which will endure throughout all eternity, not that which will perish on earth. We're to choose for our Master, God, not money or possessions. Our motivation must not be to have material security, but to see His rule and righteousness spread in the world. Yes, it's a tough, tough sermon pointing to a hard road and calling for a strong foundation. Will we hear the words of our Lord and obey? Will we choose the road that is tough over the road that is easy? Will we build our house on sand or on the rock? Would you pray with me? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your powerful word and the way it has spoken to us this morning. Father, we're so aware of the many ways that we compromise in our walk, the way we fail to to live boldly, to show the world what we know we feel in our hearts, Father, this great love we have for you and this great love we know you have for us. Father, we pray for your Spirit to embolden us, to be that salt and that light. Father, I pray for those here today who fear that their house may be built upon sand. They have felt the tensions of the day and looked ahead to the future and the finality of the grave and wondered, Father, about what words they will hear. Depart from me, or well done, my good and faithful servant. Well, we're thankful for the assurance you give us by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. We don't have to question our salvation every day. We're thankful also for your Spirit that helps us and guides us in healthy introspection to see where we are, how we stack up against your will and your word. So I pray for, here, for those who are here today who may be struggling with that assurance. And for those here today who, who lack it, Lord, they, they lack assurance at all because they know they've never made a profession of faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray today, Father, they'd rectify that. And that as we give a moment of invitation here in just a second, Lord, that they would come down and, and yield to the call of Your Son to give their hearts to Him. pray for each one of us that surely we could rededicate our, our minds and our hearts to more faithful following each and every day. Finally, I pray, Father, for those who want to be a part of a a faith family that loves Your Word and teaches Your Word faithfully, Father, that gives generously, that wants to please You and glorify You in everything that they say and do as a church body. I pray for those who are searching for that kind of church home. If You have guided them in that process, in that prayerful process, to this place on this day, I pray You'll make it clear to them as they make their decision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.